You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, back from the home country. How are you? I am good, thank you very much. <laughs> Unfortunately, see, since I'm back, I'm greeting you with water rather than wine, but you know. They do have know? wine in New York, you know. They do, but in the <laughs> afternoon at the Graduate Center is probably not a good idea. <laughs> you know, the Graduate Center, that used to be on 42nd Street, um, and they had a bar on the top floor. They're redoing that now. Oh, are uh, they really? You know, we are, yeah, we are on, uh, on 5th Avenue and 34th Street, and uh, I just heard that... Uh, they're doing the transforming the, the the top floor into a bar. Yeah, that so would be we, nice. So wine may be back in your hands sometime soon. Um, yep. So we're here to, to uh, let's do before I forget. Let's do introductions and then we'll we'll start. Um, sure. Massimo, why don't you go first? Uh, I'm Massimo Piliucci. I'm the KD Iranian Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. And I'm Daniel Kaufman, Professor of Philosophy at Missouri State University. Much to my terrible dismay, I may have to become department head again because the current department head who I handed off to has decided he no longer wants the job and there's nobody else who could do it. And if we yeah. don't have a head, then they're going to get merged with political science. Yeah. You've, been in this, good... you've been in this spot, I know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done that for five years and fortunately there, is no, there doesn't seem to be a problem in the near, near horizon, so we'll see. Um, so... Today, we're going to finish up our uh, trio of discussions on your book that you published online on philosophy and how it makes progress. Um, since it's been a while for the Sophia viewers since we've done our last one, since um, Massimo was off uh, in the flesh pots of, uh, of, of Italy, um, um, writing his, another book. It seems that you like yep. to write books a lot. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just natural, I suppose. <laughs> um, um, let's just recap very quickly um, what you mean by progress and how you and how you see how you see philosophy um, uh, making progress. So you you started off in your book and pretty much carried throughout uh, a notion that there's sort of two basic conceptions of progress. One in which um, means simply um, moving uh, progressively to, towards uh, an established goal, some sort of end state. Um, the other is where there isn't so much a set goal, but where one um, continues to develop uh, to a greater and greater sort of perfection within whatever it is that is what what is do what that one is doing. Okay, um, um, so so. You said that you identified um, science with progress in the first sense, right. and you identified logic and mathematics with profit progress in the second sense, and you said that philosophy falls somewhere between the two, but more towards the side of progress in mathematics and in logic, that is, to um, uh, attaining a more perfect state within uh, one's activity. Is that a fair characterization of, of the two? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Now, the, when we say science, uh, you know, I, the more I think about science, the, the less I believe that it is sort of one unified uh, uh, kind of activity. So certainly, I think uh, it is fair to say that the concept of progress as uh, a, approaching an ultimate goal applies to fundamental physics. 
Okay, so the goal of fundamental physics is to come up with the simplest possible, most fundamental theory about the basic structure of the universe. That is the goal. That's what fundamental physics is about. Um, I'm not sure that one can quite as easily describe the, the goal, let's say, of biology or the goal of the social sciences. You know, there is, they have a number of goals. I mean, obviously, they, they, and, and if one says, well, science is in the general business of understanding the world better and better, sure, I suppose that's a goal. But it's not something that you can measure in, you know, you can't say, oh, I got there. Uh, you know, once the physicists do get there, whatever, whatever there is, Presumably, they'd be able to tell us and say, yeah, this is, this is really it. This is the fundamental theory of everything. I don't think the same uh, happens for uh, biology or social sciences or, or other sciences. So even within the sciences, it's kind of uh, more complicated than that. Well, but this, you're right. They, this is interesting, though. Before, just before you go on, um, um, and I know this isn't our topic today, but I can't, I can't resist. Um, um, why couldn't you give a similar – the formulation you just gave for physics – progress in physics with the, with, with the goal you specified. Why couldn't you say exactly the same thing for, for biology except replace the universe with life? Well, because uh, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as the ultimate theory of life. I mean, there, is, there are theories about mm. how life evolved, for instance, which are different in kind uh, and structure and goal from theories about uh, how life came about to begin with. Uh, and then there is a lot of biology that actually has nothing to do either with the origin or the evolution of life. You know, a lot of uh, biology tends to be about, uh, let's say, classifying organisms. That's, the, that's you know, um, the, the goal of systematics. Or it has to do with uh, manipulating organisms and, uh, and their genetic code. Uh, that's the goal of applied molecular biology and genetics. And all of those goals are really pretty much independent from, right. the, from the other ones. So. so what you're saying about physics really is only true of even just fundamental physics because it wouldn't even be That's true, right. let's say, of applied physics or astronomy or, or, or in other words, you know, it, it sounds to me like, like what you're describing in terms of there being a really fully specifiable, completely statable goal, fundamental physics is the one, the only one you think has such a thing. Huh. Yeah. That's really yeah, I think so. And, and actually, that if that's true, uh, that would... Be, that would have an interesting consequence, which is, you know, ever since Galileo and Newton, fundamental physics first and then fundamental physics more recently, has always been taken as uh, the paragon of science, right? That this is the way you want to do science and all the other sciences have always been measured by how much they fall short of the ideal of fundamental physics. But if what um, we're talking about is, is in fact, a, a good way of thinking about it, then it might turn out that fundamental physics is very exceptional, even, even within science. Yeah. And so that it doesn't make much sense to think of the other sciences having to, to pattern themselves after something that is actually, after all, exceptional. Yeah, well, one last thing about this. Let me ask you. Um, can it even really be stated, though, this way about fundamental physics? Because this idea that you can state, uh, that you can give a completely fully statable uh, endpoint, um, which is this sort of theory of everything, right? Um, but... If, as we've discussed probably 30 times by now, reductionism is false, then there can't, yeah. be, then there can't be a theory of everything, right? Because the theory that you get in fundamental physics, it's going to give you a certain picture of everything, but it's not going to give you an account of everything that's in the everything, 
right? Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, but the, the problem there, of course, is in the, in the definition of everything, right? So uh, if by everything, uh, one means literally everything, that is, you know, you look at an equation and you can uh, make sense of, let's say, the conversation we're having right now, right. then no, absolutely not. That's never going to happen. Uh, but if by everything, one means, well, I want the simplest possible description of the fundamental structure of the universe, you know, mm. of, of whatever it is made of and how it came about, then yes, I think that that's actually a reasonable goal uh, on the part of, right. you know, whether they get there or not, it's a different issue. And that there is no counterpart in the other sciences to the structure of the universe and everything, and, and the basic structure of the universe and everything. In other words, there's no analog to the basic right. structure of life and everything in it, let's say. Right. Exactly. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, so what we were, so so, so there are two notions of progress. You qualified it to some degree. Was I also correct, mostly in where you locate philosophy in between the two area types of progress, but leaning towards the type that you find in mathematics and logic? Yes. So so there, however, I need to sort of uh, characterize the picture a little bit uh, more before we get into the uh, the last bit of the discussion. So. What I meant was this, that uh, you know, logic and mathematics make progress by generating their own internal problems, right? Uh, right, and then going after exploring solutions to those problems. You know, so in mathematics, typically, you know, you often, not always, uh, you start with a set of axioms, let's say, or a set, set of propositions or some, some kind of notion, then you try to sort of in, see what that, the, that notion or those axioms entail. The same goes with logic. You, you know, you start out with certain assumptions about or a certain way of, of approaching logical problems, and then you figure out uh, what uh, what that basic starting point entails. So, in that sense, I think that mathematics and logic are entirely independent of empirical evidence. I hasten to say, because usually people misunderstand <laughs> uh, this point, that that doesn't mean that mathematics and logic. Uh, do not have uh, huge implications for our, for, for our understanding of the, the, the empirical world. Of course, both logic and mathematics have been incredibly useful for uh, science, right? Uh, but you can do mathematics entirely without ever doing an experiment or an observation. And the same is true for logic. Yeah. So that, that's what I mean by, the, by saying that they're sort of internally generated kind of, of issues. Now, the, the case of philosophy is weird because it's kind of in between. I mean, on the one hand, philosophers are concerned with the way the world actually is or should be sometimes. I mean, a lot yeah. of philosophy is actually prescriptive, right? You yeah. know, ethics and epistemology, they're prescri prescriptive. So they clearly deal with, with, the, with the world uh, as it is or should be or could be, um, which means that they're not independent of empirical evidence. But they're also not in the business of doing what science does. That's because we got science, which, of course, is a progeny of philosophy. You know, it, it used to be called natural science. So philosophers are typically not in the, in the business, of, business of actually carrying out observation or performing experiments to discover new things about the world. So what are then philosophies, philosophers in the business of doing? I mean, in the business of, of combining aspects of science and logic and or mathematics uh, and, and come up with a number of coherent, logically coherent scenarios or logically coherent ways or frameworks, if you will, to think about how the world is and should be. So uh, I think that, for instance, you know, we'll talk about some of the details, I guess, in, in, in this episode, but I think, for instance, that uh, 
uh, one cannot determine, uh, let's say, an ethical system based on empirical data. I mean, this whole idea that ethics can be turned into a science, I think, is nonsense. But it's also nonsensical to say that ethics should be completely abstracted, independent of the way the world works, because after all, ethics is supposed to tell us how to behave in the world. And so it has to take into account that the world works in a certain way, that human beings are, are made in a certain way, and they have certain preferences, preferences and standard behaviors and so on and so forth, right? But I think that a good way of thinking about that is that to say that uh, ethical systems, systems are informed by, but underdetermined by the empirical evidence. That's why ethics cannot possibly be a science because science, you know, the, the facts don't tell you how you should behave because there's more than one reasonable way of behaving or more than one good way of behaving, however you define good and reasonable, yeah. uh, that is compatible with the facts. Let me ask you this, Tom, um, and not particularly with regard to ethics, but just in general, this question of whether philosophy more so than mathematics or logic is, is empirical. Um, I mean, certainly, um, philosophers don't conduct experiments and operate in the lab, but... Except but, for the so-called experimental... Right, problem. but that's, and that's really mostly to test intuitions, right? Um, yeah. um, um, and I'm going to sort of so leave that out. But, I mean, I guess if what you mean by empirical is something a little different, I mean, you'd say that philosophy is based an awful lot on, on empirical evidence in the sense that it does base a lot of, of its starting points um, on what I would call common or ordinary observation. That is sort of observation in the world as it appears in what sellers would call the manifest image, right? Yeah. Um, um, and, 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 and in that sense, I mean, I don't know whether it's proper to call that empirical without sort of doing this around it, but it certainly is grounded in ordinary observation, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm perfectly happy to do the, the, the scare quotes around empirical. But, I, but what I mean by empirical is actually the broad sense of empirical, meaning that it includes both the, the, the common image and, the, and you know, the manifest image and the uh, scientific image. Meaning that, you know, if in fact, uh, let's say, uh, something comes out of biology or neuros neuroscience or physics or whatever it is, that has import for ethics or for metaphysics or for epistemology, then the philosophers should take that on board. Right, right. So you're, you're right, of course, that historically, uh, the empirical part of philosophy uh, came, has come from, you know, day-to-day, -day obs everyday observations, you know, common experience and so on and so forth. But that's because, uh, you know, the ancient Greek and Romans didn't have modern science at their, at their disposal. Now, today, still a lot of it does come from day-to-day -day experience. And I think it should, because philosophy, in my mind, is largely about understanding uh, the place of human beings in the world or how the human beings understand the world. Uh, and therefore, it cannot do without a manifest image. Yeah. It has to reconcile. In fact, one way, actually, of thinking about certain areas of philosophy, especially in metaphysics these days, might be uh, how do we reconcile the manifest image, the way we actually see yeah. and perceive and navigate the world with the scientific image. I actually think that's a good part different. of what philosophy does, I think, is try to at least identify some sort of relationship between the manifest image and, right. the, uh, and the scientific image. Um, um, yeah, I guess I just was thinking that, you know, it's very hard to think of any philosophical theory in which a good part of the arguments don't refer to our regular observations of people's behavior um, right. um, um, as they act both individually and within institutions and sort of things like that. I mean, you couldn't do the entire Rawlsian uh, uh, veil of ignorance thought experiment without drawing from all sorts of common observations that you have about people's, uh, how, you know, the way people tend to act, right? 
That's correct. But but here's where I have a little bit of sympathy with the experimental philosophy crowd. So I think that that really experimental philosophy is essentially social science. There, what they're doing is psychology, uh, and uh, but informed by or pertinent to philosophical questions. So if let's say I'm John Rawls and, and back in the 60s or 70s, I come up with a certain way of, you know, certain thought experiments on, on how society uh, might work or should work from a, you know, in order to be just and fair. And then a uh, research comes out of psychology and says, actually, or sociology, and it says, well, actually, uh, societies don't seem to work quite that way, or human beings don't seem to work quite that way. They actually tend to work in this other way. Then if I were Rawls, I would say, oh, okay, that's the best evidence I have about how human beings actually seem to behave and work and so on and so forth. So I'm going to do that and, and use that as a basis for my thought experiments instead. So in that sense, um, the experimental philosophers are correct that it seems like dangerous and sort of even somewhat parochial to sort of ignore what the sciences, especially the social sciences tell us about human humanity and human beings and human human nature. Um, but that said, however, you know, it's not like you take on board everything that, you know, the latest, uh, the, the latest paper from, from, from psychology journals or even physics journals, um, because as philosophers, especially as a philosopher of science, I know very well that it, it, it's probably going to turn out to be right. correct. Next or week, next week, it may be something else. Right. <laughs> so I might, I might want to be cautious yeah. and go in. So, so one of my, my examples, uh, of the best examples of how to do that, and I, I have, I'll have to bring up my, my recurring uh, uh, issue recently, which is stoicism, but we're not going to talk about stoicism. I'm just going to use it as an example. So one of the best books on stoicism, on modern stoicism, is by uh, Lawrence Baker. It's called The New Stoicism. And Baker says right at the beginning that he's, he's going to update Stoic philosophy uh, by using, by incorporating as much as possible modern science, in particular modern psychology. But then he says, but the way I'm going to do that is not, it, it, he's very explicit about this, it's not by picking up the, the latest issue of whatever top psychology journal uh, uh, one can find and say, ah, that's the way it is. He says, no, because those things change too rapidly. Science, it's about, you know, checking and double checking and maybe refuting and then building on something and so on and so forth. So he says, I'm just going to uh, take a, a number of standard textbooks in psychology mm. and assume that they represent the What's pretty most, well established, yeah. That's yeah. right. The most yeah. established, you know, with caveats, of course, because even textbooks change over time. Yeah. But the most established current view that psychologists have of their profession and that's what i'm going to use as modern science not the latest thing because the latest thing could be overturned the night the day after right right okay so this now brings us to where we're, we're what we're going to spend the bulk of today on and so we want to talk specifically about progress in philosophy and um one of the things that came out towards the end of the last one because i pressed you pretty hard on this i said look Speaking of progress implies some notion of betterment. If there's progress in philosophy, doesn't that mean that we should be able to say that philosophy is better now than it was in the past? And isn't that sort of problematic? It's not clear to me that Kripke is better than Aristotle or, or whoever. Or, and you agreed with that. And what you said was that really philosophy becomes, became, has become better in the sense that there are, there are a greater number uh, and selection of potential positions within the conceptual space 
to draw from when one is doing one's work. And 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 in a sort of in this sense, more is better. Um, 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 because if the if 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 the aim if the purpose of philosophy is to sort of create this internal space in which we can look at questions from a number of different perspectives, different theoretical frameworks to help us sort of live better in the general sense, um, right. which includes think better and act better and all of that, then the more the merrier, the more the better. Um, right. What, and, and, to some extent, yeah, yeah go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, to some extent, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stand by that. Um, but, but I think there are certain areas of philosophy where we can actually see that things are better. For instance, logic. Right, um, right, right. So, you know, yes, yeah, so Aristotelian logic was, you know, it's still, you know, it needs to be studied and it still, it still right. has a domain of application. But once we moved from bimodal to multimodal logic, you know, basically people can show that Aristotelian logic is, is a subset, right, is a special right, case right, of right, right. logic, in which case you can say with reasonable, uh, you know, uh, assurance that, okay, so multimodal logic is actually an improvement over right. Aristotle. Right, although there are also developments in logic that couldn't be described that way. So yes, Correct. modal logic is newer than, let's say, uh, pre predicate logic is, right? But someone like Quine would not think that modal logic was an improvement. Indeed, he thought modal logic was completely illegitimate, right? Um, um, and so, and so not every development, even in logic, is, is, is an improvement in the clear sense of better than the previous. Um, yes. Um, but I and agree with you that there are examples where it clearly is, right? Correct. Right. And the best example of, of uh, on, the, on the other hand, the, the first mode of, of um, making progress in philosophy, the one you were referring to uh, earlier, uh, is in ethics. So I think, for instance, modern ethics is not as good. It's worse. Yeah. As, yeah. I think yeah. it is. It is worse than than ancient ethics. Meaning that I think that a virtual ethical approach is actually better for a variety of reasons uh, that we may or may not get into. But right. um, be, uh, compared to, let's say, utilitarianism, consequentialism, ca uh, Kantian deontology, and so on and so forth. Right. But it is still true that today we have this panoply of positions. We have these these number of frameworks. Uh, that one can pick and choose from. And one can say, well, actually, no, I think that for certain kind of issues or for my personality or whatever the reason is, uh, a Kantian approach actually works better uh, within a particular domain or for particular uh, individuals than a virtual approach. Right. Uh, so I don't think that's, a, that's an example where I think there's been progress in the sense of now we have multiple peaks in what I call sort of the... the, the, the uh, space of logical uh, conceptual possibilities, uh, but I still think that the original peak, the virtual ethics one, is actually the highest uh, and and the most interesting one. Yeah, that's probably the best example that you could give of one where it not only hasn't clearly gotten better, in some ways you could argue it's gotten worse. Um, um, I actually think I might say a similar thing for about theories of explanation. Um, um, I like I, I like having the more multivalent conception of explanation that you have in, in Aristotle than, than the very narrow one that you have now, which then forces you to call things that are explanations something else and becomes very sort of... Um, but let me add, you know, and actually it would be interesting, I wonder if there is any... You're trying to give a general account of progress in philosophy. I wonder if you could, if there's any general characteristics of those times in which philosophy actually gets worse over time. I wonder if there's a similar that you could, if you could give a similar um, unified story about why sometimes theories get worse rather than better. Um, um, but we're 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 here to talk about getting better. Um, so we wanted to talk today about four specific areas where you can identify philosophy as having uh, 
as I, having, I, as I, having I, progressed. Go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I just had an idea about one such possible account. So yeah, sure. Go I'm ahead. Gonna, yeah, go ahead. I thought just without any preparation, which means that what I'm going to say, it's probably a lot of uh, baloney. But still, <laughs> um, so so here's one example in a completely different field. Okay, where I think that the more recent, uh, some some more recent developments are uh, a sense of progress. You know, uh, they, they are progress. They make progress in the sense that they explore different possibilities, but they're actually qualitatively uh, lower than what came before. And that's uh, visual, the visual arts, painting. So, if you look at the history of of painting, and especially throughout the 20th century. Uh, but of course, starting out, you know, much earlier, let's say from the Renaissance on, I really don't think that in any sensible way, one can walk into an art museum today, look at, you know, white canvas number 23, let's say, compare that with Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and say, you know, that's much better. That's a hell of a, uh, of a, of a more interesting, more, you know, more aesthetically pleasing and so on and so forth. <laughs> But it is certainly the case that abstract art in the 20th century and early 21st century has in fact explored and continues to explore a conceptual landscape that simply was not available to Michelangelo. Michelangelo yeah. would have never thought yeah. about of, you know, painting a white canvas and saying, yeah, there, right. here it is. This is right. my painting. Right, right. right. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, um, obviously certain modern critics like Clement Greenberg would, 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 would actually argue that with you. Um, um, sure. As would. Would, as would as would Clive Bell, um, but um, but actually Arthur Danto, the late Arthur Danto, um, yeah. who very much relied upon the postmodern to do his philosophy of art, right. he says that he says something towards along the lines of, while Brillo boxes is great philosophy, you know, I'd rather own one Giorgione than the entire Warhol uh, than the entire yeah. Warhol. Uh, Exactly. Catalog. Uh, I think I'm with, with Danto on that right, one. Right, right. So if you, if you take that kind of view, then I think that's one example, you know, of how it basically the, 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 the underlying idea would be that, look, uh, sometimes what you do is you discover the better things, the better areas of the landscape early, right. maybe because they're just more visible, they're just more obviously out there, right? And then... Uh, if you want to keep going and explore the landscape, you will find other peaks. Right. Those peaks might be minor. Right. And once you've almost exhausted the landscape, then you have to sort of become too almost too clever and start yes. revisiting the landscape in all sorts of odd ways that maybe are not so well yes. motivated other than by the, the desire to keep finding more. I actually was going to – I thought you were going to say physics. I thought you were going to say string theory. <laughs> and the reason – Oh, boy. Is, Let's not talk about well, string theory. No, no, no. And the reason I thought you wanted to say that was because – one of the ways I could see you saying that, that philosophy, one of the reasons, maybe the general reasons why maybe philosophy might go wrong or get worse over time is that maybe people too emboldened by progress um, lose sight of the constraints that they're supposed to be operating under, right? And, yeah. and, and string theory yeah. maybe is an example of that, right? Maybe, maybe we can talk later uh, of the, the last bit in the chapter on, on progress in philosophy in the book, which is about the difference, as then then it put it, between uh, uh, chess and schmess, and and which gets really to what you're saying that sometimes people just become you know forced to become more you know clever, too clever for their own good in order to find something new to uh, to say. Right. Uh, before we abandon string theory, the reason I'm telling I'm, I said let's not talk about string theory 
is because uh, just yesterday, uh, Eon Magazine published a, an article that I wrote for uh, for them about uh, uh, Popper falsificationism. Yep, and yep. I saw it. I read it. Yeah, we'll, we'll which link was, to it. Yeah, so it was based on a conference that I went to that was invited to as a philosopher of science in, in Munich, organized by a, a philosopher and physicist and, and with a lot of physicists there. And boy, did the hate tweets start. The minute I mean, after I, you posted. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I got a lot of, you know, oh, what do philosophers think they are? And, of course, whenever I get these things, I'm very amused by a couple of things. First of all, a lot of people that are, that see these things on Twitter apparently don't realize that I'm not just a philosopher, I'm a scientist. Right. It's true, I'm not a physicist, and, and I was certainly not writing about string theory as a physicist. I was writing about string theory, string theory from an epistemological perspective. But it's like, it's funny that they say, oh, here comes the philosopher. Right, well, right. Actually, slow down. But the other thing is, as you know, a lot of physicists, not all of them by, by, by a long shot, but a lot of physicists recently have been um, very dismissive of philosophy. And so it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, deliciously ironic that this is a class of people who think very highly of themselves and of the theories that they produce, and justly so, right. because they're interesting and complicated. They think very lowly of philosophy, unjustly so, in my opinion. But as soon as a philosopher says something, instead of just ignoring it, because after all, it's, it's philosophy, so who cares, right? I mean, I don't go after what astrologers write. Because yeah. I don't give the astrologers the, 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 the you know the, the uh, a minute of my day, right? Um, and so I find it very interesting that you know physicists, uh, the same physicists who, on the one hand, dismiss philosophy as entirely irrelevant, get really, really pissed off if you say anything about string theory and yeah. imply that maybe you know you've abandoned the empirical method just a little bit too much, right? I mean, I mean, to, exactly. so, to, so, um, so anyway, yeah, so, so progress in philosophy, we're going to identify four areas. Um, I guess that, you know, the areas I, thought, I, I suggested that we do were um, ethics, political philosophy, epistemology, and philosophy of science. And I don't right. care what order you discuss those in. But right. one of the things that just I wondered about I, as I was preparing for this um, Given that progress in philosophy is mostly of the second kind, and thus more is simply better by virtue of having more positions in the conceptual space, given that that's the case, how can you give anything other than a purely generic account of progress in philosophy? How can you point to specific developments and say, aha, this is progress, when the only sense that they're really progress is not that they're better than the other theories, but that they simply provide more uh, opportunities for people to um, to look at some look at questions from different perspectives. Right. So again, remember where we're that my conception of progress, especially in philosophy, is not that it produces something necessarily better. It may or may not, but it doesn't necessarily have to. What it does have to produce, however, is a, a new account. I, I prefer not to, as you as you know, I prefer not to use the word theory for yeah. philosophy and, ref, and uh, you know reserve that to science. But uh, uh, but we make progress in philosophy if we come up with a new account of whatever the problem is that we're uh, wanting to give accounts accounts of a new account that is a new but also interesting uh, in terms of answering the internally generated questions or addressing the internally generated questions that philosophers work on, uh, and, of course, logically coherent or you know, as, as coherent as possible and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so, so I think the best way to do that is to, 
to look at examples. And, and you know, some of my favorite examples actually come from philosophy of science. So why don't you start with that? Why don't you start with right. that? Give me some examples of what you think is pretty clear evidence of progress in philosophy of science. Right. So, so the debate uh, between uh, 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 surrealists and anti-realists in philosophy of science uh, is, I think, one of the best examples of progress, not just in philosophy of science, but in philosophy in general. Now, again, the caveat there is that I happen to be particularly familiar with that uh, with that discussion. Sure. Because it's always going to be like science. that. So, yeah. yeah. That, so give us give us a specific talk us through a little bit specifically how that debate has gone in, in such a way that you think really we've gotten a lot out of it. Right. Yeah. So so let's start with a little bit of a recap of what does it mean to be a realist or an anti-realist right. in, in philosophy of science, and then and then I think we need to look at least in in part at the history of that debate because I think that the only way to determine, especially in philosophy, if there has been uh, progress is that you need to look at it historically. You know, what is it that people thought 50 years ago or 100 years ago or, or whatever it is. So uh, to be a realist in philosophy of science uh, means that you essentially behave, behave like most, although not all, scientists about theoretical constructs. So let's say, let's, let, let's pick a theoretical construct in, in science like electrons. Okay? Nobody's ever seen an electron, so it's a theoretical construct in that sense. Okay? Now, uh, if you're a realist, you think that electrons actually pick, the term electrons actually picks something out there that is physically real and has certain characteristics that you can study, obviously, indirectly, since you cannot see directly electrons. If you're an anti-realist, on the other hand, you say, well, that's actually going a little too far. Uh, what it is, is that we know that if I postulate a uh, non-visible, you know, an invisible uh, entity, which I call electrons, and, I, and, and to which I attach certain properties, those properties are, that, that, that postulate, that, that, that postulation helps me uh, with the theory that I'm working on, and it helps me with empirical predictions that I, that, so it's, in other words, it's practically useful. It's, it's pragmatic, right? It's a pragmatic move. So that's the basic distinction between the two. Now, that distinction is a very old one. If you think about it, uh, about, let's say, the transition between uh, the Ptolemaic system and the Copernican system in astronomy, where Ptolemy was uh, hypothesizing uh, epicycles, right? These epicycles were these little sub-orbits that the planets would, would sort of uh, rotate around uh, in order to account for the position that the planets actually do have in the sky. Now, you could have thought about the epicycles either as, as a convenient fiction is a mathematical fiction, which is what it, they turned out to be, uh, a, a mathematical fiction that makes the calculations come right, so it's useful, but it's not describing a reality. There is no real thing. There is no such a thing as an epicycle out there. Or you can think of it in terms of, uh, in realistic terms, as, as a realist and say, no, 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 uh, you, you can't see the epicycles, but they're really out there. These things are actually descriptions of the physical world. So this, this, this debate um, has been going on for a long time within science and, of course, more recently in philosophy of science. Now, why do I say that it has made, there's been progress in, that, in, in, in the debate? Because let's say if we start with uh, the late 19th century uh, or, early, or very early 20th century, I think most philosophers and certainly scientists uh, were realists. They would take uh, hypothetical constructs at face value. If you, if you tell me that there is caloric fluid, I imagine that you're referring to an actual physical thing. If you're, if you're talking about 
electrons, I imagine you're talking about an actual physical thing. Whether you can see it or not, it's, it's a different issue. Then the, the, the positivist came about, right? So the logical positivist and, and, and the logical empiricists at the early part of the 20th century, and they said, whoa, 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 that's too much metaphysics. You, you're making a lot of assumptions about invisible things you cannot actually possibly test. You cannot actually possibly demonstrate that they exist. So they, they were really that set against uh, any sort of metaphysical access or really against metaphysics, period. And so they said, no, 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 let's, let's talk about, on, in terms of, of you know, sort of theoretical constructs, but the only thing you can actually talk about as really existence are, are really existing are the things you can actually verify, you know, the famous verifiability principle. Now, logical positivism and logical empiricism uh, held sway for you know, a few decades at the beginning of the 20th century, and then they were gradually, but very firmly dismantled by a number of people, uh, beginning with you know, Karl Popper and then going on all the way to Quine. Uh, and, um, uh, and Hillary Putnam, among, among others. So logical empiricism logical, and logical positivism are no longer, they have not been viable positions in philosophy of science now for more than half a century, okay? So it, seems, it seemed uh, for, for the, in the middle part of the 20th century, like realism was back with evangelists because if you eliminated the only alternative, you know, the only uh, uh, sort of anti-realist alternative that you can possibly have, then realism is back. And then Van Frassen comes about. And uh, Van Frassen, uh, back in the, I think in the 70s and 80s, largely, it's most of the, the work that, that built toward this, this resurgence of anti-realism, proposed an, a different kind of anti-realism, uh, which he called constructive empiricism, I think. And basically he said, look, we'll learn from the mistakes of logical positivists, but we still do have a problem. We still have a runaway tendency toward metaphysics in science. We have a tendency for scientists to just make up uh, theoretical entities that are not in, even in principle observable. Uh, and, you know, we just mentioned string theory late, uh, earlier. So. Could, you, could you just, before you go on, can you make a distinction yeah. between observable and, and empirically verifiable? Because it seems to me that I don't see anything metaphysical about mm -hmm. an epicycle or about an, ele yeah. an electron and they are empirically verifiable in the sense that that's why anybody thinks that they're there to begin with is because they observe all sorts of uh, effects in nature that yeah. one can that one can that if one ascribes to these things. In other words, it doesn't seem to me that it seems to me that by observable they they mean something much narrower than empirically verifiable. Yeah. And I don't see how yeah. it gets makes you metaphysical. Okay, so there's two issues there. Yeah. One is about observable versus non-observable uh, distinction. The other one is about the metaphysics. So let's start with the metaphysics. So the metaphysics comes in once you start attributing on ontological status to certain things, right? So it makes a difference if you're saying uh, epicycles are ontologically mathematical constructions as opposed to they are ontologically physically real things out there, right? In both cases, they're invisible. If they're mathematical structures, they're invisible by definition. Uh, but if they're physical, physical things of some sort, they're, they're invisible only as a matter of contingency, uh, not, not, not in principle. So, so the metaphysics comes in as soon as you start uh, thinking in terms of the ontology of, uh, of invisibles such as epicycles, caloric fluid, uh, uh, electrons, and strings, and things but like that. But invisible is not the same as not empirically verifiable. It can be empirically verifiable and be invisible, right? 
Yes. So that brings me to the second distinction. So the distinction, so Van Frassen has been very clear on this, even though he has been taken to task by a number of other philosophers that I think misunderstood what he was saying, which is kind of interesting because he was very clear about what he was saying. So he drew this distinction between uh, uh, observable and non-observable. The terms that he uses are observable, non-observable, not, in, not invisible. Um, and it was very clear that the terms observable and non-observable are relative to human epistemic access to the world. So, for instance, a, uh, an electron is unobservable, meaning that no human can observe electrons, period. Okay. Uh, now, genes are also unobservable, even though now with sufficiently powerful uh, uh, electronic microscopes, you can actually see individual strands of DNA. Okay. You can see that. But genes keep being invis uh, uh, sorry, not unobservable for Van Frassen because you need an electron microscope in order to even get close to that sort of thing. The human being cannot do it. And of course, electron microscopes are very sophisticated instruments which are based on a hell of a lot of theory and they, they, they perform a hell of a lot, a lot of mathematical calculations before they present you with, quote, unquote, an image. Right. right? So and also the same goes with uh, particles. I mean, one can say, well, but of course I can see the electron. I can see the traces of, you know, particles on uh, uh, ones that I, that I cause a smashing right. uh, of atoms in an accelerator. But when Fresen says, no, you don't see the particles. You only have a very sophisticated indirect reconstruction of certain phenomena that you can measure, but you don't see anything. These things are unobservable. Yeah. Now, he had been taken to task for that. We say, well, but that's an arbitrary distinction. That's just because human beings are made in a certain way biologically, and so we can see certain things and not see other things. And my friend's response was, well, of course, but we're talking about science. Science is a human activity. Right, right. It's a human epistemic activity. So to pretend that the limitations of human, uh, 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 you know, sensorial access are irrelevant. Don't constrain. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sure, of course yeah, we're talking yeah, about yeah. humans. So what? I just yeah. always thought that that, meta, that calling something metaphysical in the negative sense <laughs> meant that beyond being unobservable, it was also not empirically verifiable. That is, that one would know something substantial a priori. That's what I thought was the negative sense of metaphysical. Right. But, but yes, I think that broadly speaking, you're right. A lot of philosophers and especially a lot of scientists use that, the term that way. But again, Van Frassen is, is very uh, specific about yeah. this. And he says, uh, look, we're, we're talking about ontological attributions. Hmm. Okay. And so, uh, which do make a difference because scientists, again, typically uh, speak as if the, the unobservable entities uh, that enter into the construction of their theories are, in fact, ontologically real. They're, they're out there. They have some kind of, of actual ontology as opposed to just being, you know, a convenient mathematical constructs to make the equations right. uh, turn. Right, right. Now, so Van Frassen presented these, these uh, um, constructive em empiricists, uh, empiricist position, and that was a huge resurgence of the anti-realist position. Okay, for many years, this was debated, it still is, but for many years, this was debated as, you know, this is the, the, the cutting edge of the uh, anti-realist position. And in fact, the realists did not have a lot of good answers to several of Van Frassen's objections uh, to, to against realism. Right. So the debate then so had moved, there had been progress, meaning that a new position had entered the debate, and this position did seem, seem significantly better than the positions that preceded it. Insofar as it 
made better arguments and posed arguments that the previous position couldn't answer. Correct. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. exactly. Now, several years later, the realist response came, and I think it actually does dominate the discussion at this point. I mean, they're actually... Uh, survey data about philosophers' opinions, which I actually, which I do report in the book. Uh, there was a paper published, co-written uh, co by um, David Chalmers about uh, a few years ago about what philosophers think about different er different questions in their field. And it seems clear that philosophers of science now are, as a majority, they are realists, but they are realists as uh, of a different kind of the one that uh, Van Frassen was criticizing. They are essentially structural realists. Yeah. So a structural realist is somebody who says, look, what's realist about, what, what, need, what people need to be realist about are not specific entities necessarily, like electrons or strings, but rather the mathematical logical structure of certain scientific theories. So the argument that they're making is, for instance, the typical example, the classic example is the transition between uh, uh, Newtonian mechanics and general relativity. So Newtonian mechanics assumes a, a, a structure of the world that is very different from that of general relativity. For one thing, space and time are supposed to be unchangeable, you know, fixed background conditions, while on the other hand, for general relativity, they're actually part and, part and parcel of the fabric of the cosmos itself, and they're right. changeable, right? They're, they can be altered by the presence of gravitational uh, objects. Uh, but mathematically, you can actually show that you get uh, Newtonian mechanics, the equations of Newtonian mechanics, as a uh, limit case from the equations of general relativity. So it looks like the mathematical structure of Newtonian mechanics has been preserved uh, in and expanded, of course, greatly expanded, but it has been preserved, meaning that it hasn't been rejected or contradicted by general relativity. So a structural realist says, therefore, what you want to be realist about is not, you know, space and time as a billiard, as a billiard table, the way in which Newton thought about it, as opposed to a malleable uh, fabric of the cosmos, the way in which uh, Einstein was thinking about. What you want to be realist about is the mathematical, the underlying mathematical logical structure of the theory. I have to say, though, that starts to sound suspiciously similar to the sophisticated anti-realist position. I mean, I'm not so sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not that doesn't strike me as being realist in a very interesting sense. I mean, you know what I mean? The sense of realism that I thought was supposed to be interesting is that these things, these things really exist independently. And now what you're saying, well, you know, that's not what we really mean. What we really mean. Right. It just seems so. So are you almost saying that there's. Is this a case of progress in which there's almost a kind of convergence by way of growth of both sides? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Almost like a suburb becoming growing so much that it sort of becomes yeah. part of a larger metropolitan area, sort of. Yeah, 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 exactly. And there are there are other examples. Maybe we can talk about it later. But for instance, certain versions of uh, modern day utilitarianism are uh, do incorporate uh, notions from from the eudaimonistic, and also there there are and from eudaimonistic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so there are the examples, but but to stick for a moment with the examples from philosophy of science. So I, yes, I think you're right. I think that is is somewhat of a kind of a convergence. And not only that, even though the majority of philosophers of science nowadays, I think, are structural realists, uh, there are different kinds of structural realism. For one thing, 
you know, for the most extreme, in my mind, type of structural realism is, uh, is so-called ontic structural realism, uh, which is espoused by people like uh, James Lediman, who's a really uh, interesting guy. Uh, but he does, he actually thinks essentially that the world is ultimately made of mathematical structures. And he doesn't mean that metaphorically. He means that literally, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, at some point I asked James, he was, a, he was one, uh, uh, he and, um, and uh, his colleague, Don Ross, uh, at some point I interviewed them for one of my podcasts. And, uh, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, does that, doesn't that sound a lot like the P word, meaning Platonism? Yeah. And he says, yeah, it does, <laughs> as a matter of fact. So you can see that they, they, now a lot of structural realists reject that. They don't, they're not, they don't go into the sort of platonic realm. Those discussions are still open. They're still very much out there. Not only that, there's another probably more damning uh, uh, issue with structural realism, which is it seems to apply pre pretty much only to physics. Uh, you cannot make that kind of nice transitions uh, between the mathematical structure of, let's say, biological... Because theory. there isn't a clear... You can't give a complete description of biology in, a math, in mathematical exactly. terms. Exactly. Because there is no, there is no equivalent mathematical structuring in those sciences. Now, the response there is, well, that's because those sciences are not yet at the level of physics. No, that can't be right. That, that can't be right. No, yeah, no. That's that misunderstands the, what the subject... Let me say you one thing with respect to realism and anti-realism in particular. I'm actually a little surprised you chose that one. Um, I thought you were going to choose theories of explanation, and the reason I'm a little I'm a little surprised is only because I was under the impression that whether one is a realist or an anti-realist is empirically neutral, and so it doesn't make any difference, right? Yeah. In, in other words, it's a purely matter of purely intellectual interest. In other words, there's no scientific account you can't accept or can accept, regardless of whether you're a realist. In other words, it decides no scientific controversies. Right. So, so in what sense, back, then, is it progress if it doesn't well, have, matter which, which one you hold? I, I, I actually agree. I think you're absolutely right on that. But, again, remember, we're doing philosophy here, not science, right? right. So reiterate so, in this context. Right. And so in philosophy of science isn't necessarily in the business of settling uh, issues in in the sciences. So right. even a an account in philosophy of science is, is as you say, uh, empirically neutral. Uh, that doesn't count against that account because the their problems, whatever they do. The point of the account, remember, so philosophy of science by and large is in the business of understanding how science works, as well as the limits of scientific working. Right. So the, the epistemological limits of of science. So, in that sense, if, let's say, the, uh, the constructive empiricist or the anti-realist position at some point comes up on top, right, then that would imply a, something very strong about the nature of science. It wouldn't make any difference to the scientists themselves, yeah. but it would make the difference to the rest of us because it would tell us, look, the scientists are not actually in the business of discovering ultimate physical right, reality. Right, right. They're in the business of, of producing mathematically adequate explanations. Right, 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 right. And in, no, no, you're absolutely right. And I'm realizing now the mistake I was making because I was thinking, well, it does matter if your theory of explanation is nomological deductive or whether it's statistical. But it, again, doesn't really matter in the sense of deciding any scientific controversy. It right. matters in terms of understanding what it is scientists are doing, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
Now, what about, so, so there are similar examples, I think, in other areas, like, you know, ethics is the other obvious one. In the, in the book, I mean, we talked about, of course, the, the major peaks represented by virtue ethics and, you know, utilitarianism, deontology, and then there are others, there's, you know, uh, ethics of care, there's, there's a number of others, there's communitarian yeah. position, transport, right? It's not like there's only those three, but those three are the major ones. And uh, in the book, I actually go in detail in, in, on one of these peaks, uh, utilitarianism and, and, and consequentialism. And that's because I think the history of utilitarianism uh, from the you know, early 19th century on is a very good example of how a, a particular philosophical position makes progress because, you know, the early utilitarians were, you know, somewhat naive about things. I mean, you, you start with, ben first of all, there were no utilitarian notions actually even before Bentham, as I write in, in the book. Yeah, sure. In, in the Enlightenment, there, there, there are, yeah. 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 There were proto-utilitarians. Proto That's basically. right. That's yeah. right. But let's say that we even start with Bentham. So Bentham's position was very, you know, by, by modern standards, was very unsophisticated and very naive. I mean, he thought that you, you could literally do a calculus. Yes. So you, you can quantify things, uh, and then you would write eventually an equation that will tell you, well, for this particular problem, here's what maximizes happiness, however you measure it, and here's yeah. what minimizes pain, and that's what you should do, right? And so uh, John Stuart Mill, who was a student of Bentham uh, uh, to some extent, uh, almost immediately, like, you know, a couple of decades later, he came up with a first major improvement. I think, I think it is an improvement, uh, which is to make a distinction between, you know, to realize that, that not, all, um, uh, not all things can be quantified, not all goods can be quantified that way, that there are actually uh, what he referred to as, uh, uh, you know, high, good, uh, high goods and low, and low goods, or, uh, and, and those are, to some extent, incommensurable. Yeah. And if they're incommensurable, then you have to start making both qualitative as well as quantitative distinctions about, about things. You cannot just write, write an equation into the calculus the way in which Bentham uh, thought. But of course, once you do that, now you open yourself to criticism. Because, well, who decides what the high goods are and the low goods are? And, and you know, this is the, there's this famous uh, quote by Mill about Socrates and the pig. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right, uh, that, um, uh, to show that, well, you know, all pigs and human beings enjoy certain things, right? You know, like food and sex and so on and so forth. But only certain animals and, and certain human beings enjoy what he calls the high, the high goods. And the difference is that, you know, the, the, if you want to decide what is what, you have to ask the people that are capable of enjoying both. You cannot yeah. ask the pig because the pig cannot enjoy the kind of things that Socrates right, enjoyed. Right, right. There's plenty of criticism of that position. Where I, don't, I don't think we need to get into it. Um, but it is still an improvement over Bentham. Well, uh, let, let me say, though, I mean, this might be, uh, you know, this is a minor disagreement, but it does speak to the general point. Um, there are a lot of people who have returned to a more Benthamite utilitarianism precisely because they don't think that the sort of qualitative hedonism can be successfully cashed out. Uh, and secondly, because it seems to reach, reintroduce into ethics a kind of elitism that was precisely yeah. what was so important about utilitarianism to get rid of. I mean, you have to remember, utilitarianism was instrumental um, to the introduction of humane legislation and public policy in Britain. Yeah. And if it had only been extended to people who had higher pleasures, it wouldn't have right. been. And so, in other words, it's not a clear, I don't know that I think that, that the, the, the qualitative hedonism is a clear... Uh, uh, improvement over, in the sense of betterment, 
it certainly explored a new set of territories that allows us to maybe think of utilitarianism in a more sophisticated way. But at the end of the day, it's not clear that it was a successful adventure, right? I mean... Uh, yes and no. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that there are people that have been re reacting to sort of the qualitative quantitative distinction and, and in some sense going back to a quantitative one. But they haven't gone back to Bentham. No, that's true. Stuff, that's stuff, true. Right? Right. And so this is a similar story to the one that I just told in some detail about realism versus anti-realism. Uh, when Van Frassen criticized realism, he didn't go back to logical empiricism. Right. Because right, right. he knew that, was, that position was dead. He was aware of the, the devastating critique that had been put forth against logical empiricism, logical positivism. And so it returned to that family. Maybe, maybe one way of thinking about it is that he returned to that family of positions, right, anti-realism, but now in a more sophisticated way uh, because it was building on the criticism that had been uh, made during the previous decades. I think the same has been happening, and it's still happening, actually, for utilitarians, both within utilitarianism as also, and also in, in, in the context of the broader discussion between uh, utilitarians and, and uh, Kantian deontologists. That is, you know, you don't go back to the original position. You may gravitate to, toward the original, uh, toward a certain family of positions, but you, you do it from the point of view of, okay, I understood the criticism right. and, and I'm trying to come up you with it. You do it from a perspective of much greater knowledge and wisdom. You Correct. come back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that sense, I think that's, that's progress because without the intervening discussions and clarifications and yeah. criticism and counter-criticism, uh, a more sophisticated Bentian utilitarianism would, be, would, would not be possible. Right, and, and, and within utilitarianism a lot specifically, there's also the argument, I mean, Martha Nussbaum is famous for this, for claiming that Mill is in many ways a eudaimonist. Um, um, and Mill yes. himself identifies his brand of hedonism with the Epicurean, with Epicurean hedonism, which is a form of eudaimonism. Yep. And so um, um, you could argue that the utilitarianism didn't just evolve in terms of its quantitative and qualitative versions, but that it also took on board uh, eudaimonistic uh, uh, considerations and with later versions, even some of the deontological. So some of the rule utilitarianisms are clearly efforts to incorporate some of the insights from from uh, from from uh, deontological uh, ethics. And so what happens? That that's that's exactly right. So so there's there's uh, you know cross pollination. There there's there is okay. Well, this seems like a good idea. It's compatible enough with my framework that I can incorporate it or I can adopt it in a different in a different fashion. Now. As you were saying earlier with the uh, realism and the realism situation, it may very well be that at some point you sort of converge to a position that is not no longer recognizable as... It's multidimensional and takes in pieces and bits of all of these different... Um, right. Or you, may, or you may paint yourself into a corner and say, you know what, fine, if I actually give this one to the virtual ethicist or I give this one to the... Uh, you know, to the anti-realist, I'm no longer a utilitarian, I'm no longer a realist, so fine, I'm going to bite the bullet and, you know, and yeah. sort of move over to the other camp. But, you know, this is, too, I mean, I'm wondering, this is two areas where we're seeing that when you really get advanced in the discipline, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years into the discipline, even thousands of years into the discipline, right. that you start to develop a kind of a convergence in the sense that it's less and less one theory being replaced by another or being followed by another and more theories incorporating more and more elements. And I'm wondering if, if this is maybe generally true, 
if maybe then we need to refine or revise the characterization of progress in philosophy, it's not necessarily that one has more and more positions on the map, because it seems to me once you get to a certain point, it might start becoming fewer and fewer positions again. They're just that the positions are more convergent in the sense that they have more pieces from the other. You know, uh, not that it really so, matters. I'm just wondering. No, you know, right. It doesn't really matter. But I, I think what we're, you're just depicting is sort of a, a jazz theory of, of philosophy. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, so jazz evolved over the 20th century by exploring different ways of, uh, sort of, of, of doing freeform music. And then at some point, it basically exhausted, uh, at least temporarily, uh, it's just the number of reasonable ways of doing it, and therefore it became, it started going back into its own history and, and, and melding things That's right. together. That's right. Uh, yeah, right. so sure. And actually, Danto, Danto characterizes all of art history this way, and that's why he speaks of a point at which art history ends. What he means is this notion of progression from one, theory, from one model to the next um, ends, because all the space has been exhausted. And right. then what has to happen is recombination um, and convergences of various kinds, which I guess can go to the point to which you create new positions that then maybe a new history can start up again. Um, sure. um, exactly. um, yeah, that's very interesting. I, mean, I don't think I have a problem with, with that way of seeing, of seeing things, but now you see how different that actually is from science. No, it's nothing like science, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You don't have these, you don't really have any kinds of convergence, do you? Not, no, not really. no, no, no. For all of the talk, again, by fundamental physicists of, you know, arriving at a theory of everything, blah, blah, blah. Uh, as it turns out, if you look at the history of science throughout the 20th century, uh, what's happening is exactly what Jerry Fodor had predicted back in the 70s, which is the more science pro makes progress, however you want to define that, the more actually that the scientific disciplines become further and further from right, each other. Right, uh, right. This was very clear. This was painfully clear during the famous debate uh, about the construction of the uh, superconducting super collider uh, back, I think, in the 80s, maybe, uh, in the United States, uh, when, uh, you know, Congress eventually, the, the U.S. Congress eventually sort of cut off funding, and that's why we don't have a superconducting super collider, and we have the, the, the large Adrian Collider instead in, at the CERN in Geneva, which is a multinational collaboration. At the time, Physicists and other scientists were called to testify in Congress to try to convince people, you know, why this, this is, you know, politicians and why this was a good investment uh, in, in American science. You know, the cost was several billion dollars. And famously, on, the, on one side, in the, in the, in the pro side, you had uh, Steven Weinberg, who was uh, with the Nobel uh, physicist, fundamental physicist, who, was, who kept telling... Uh, um, uh, you know, talking about this unifying theory of everything that we will get closer and closer to, and you know, understanding of the fundam fundamentals of the universe. And one of his opponents was a physicist named, I think, Anderson, if I remember correctly, uh, who was a uh, solid-state physicist. And uh, and his objection was, "Look, my friend, you keep telling us the fundamental physics is quote unquote fundamental, not just in the sense that it looks at the foundations of of the cosmos, but in the sense that it's." foundational to all of other science, but in fact, the more you make progress in your area, the less relevant what you do is to the rest of us, right. including the rest of the physics. Including me, if not a physicist, right. Exactly. Right, right. Let alone biologists or right. geologists right. or social scientists, right? right. 
So in that sense, I think that 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 um, photo was right. That science is actually spinning off a bunch of things in a bunch of different directions. And yes, we do in some sense have some idea of how everything hangs together. Yeah, because you know, uh, no biologist would propose any notion, for instance, that um, violates I don't know the second principle thermodynamics, for instance. So we do know that all the other sciences do need to play by the rules of fundamental physics. If you if you propose a theory that violates anything in fundamental physics, you're off on the wrong on the wrong path. Yeah. But but that's only a constraint. It's not an explanation. You know, fundamental physics doesn't. And it's actually a very minimal constraint. I mean, if you think right, about exactly. it, yeah, I mean, it is and wildly underdetermines the, the exactly. Fundamental you know. physics grossly underdetermines the rest of science, and it doesn't really help very much, other than. To put together these these sort of very general constraints, yeah, uh, things that you cannot do. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, this whole thing about the larger picture of evolution in these areas, um, it seems to me I'm I'm almost starting to wonder whether the convergence model is characteristic of disciplines that are inherently historical in nature, right? That have a, that that have a, that are they're historicist in nature. And those are disciplines also where it so happens you have to know the history to do the disciplines well. And science is not like that. It's not fundamentally historical nature or historicist in nature. And you really don't need to know the history of physics to be able to do contemporary physics. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I, I suspect there are probably some really deeply interesting things about the, the fundamental differences between the types of activity that rest upon whether they're fundamentally historical yeah. Or, or, or whether they're they're ahistorical, you know. But so, but, but so you see, what one of the things that that my model of his, of, of um, uh, progress in philosophy does, I think, it accounts for something that it re it really is puzzling to people outside of philosophy about the way philosophy works, right? And it was puzzling to me, yeah. honestly, when I came into philosophy late as a as originally as a. So, why the hell should I study Plato or Aristotle? or Descartes, or whatever, right? So why is it that philosophers, philosophers don't do that just to study the history of their field. They, there are people who think that, you, who debate platonic positions. That's integral to doing the field now, is correct. to study exactly. these things, yes. So Plato is integral to an understanding of certain, certain areas, right. that, that be metaphysics or ethics or whatever it is, or political philosophy or whatever it is. Now, why is that, right? So the scientist typically says, See, that shows that philosophy doesn't make any progress because you guys are still discussing stuff. That the same thing over <laughs> Right. It's like no, no, no scientist is even seriously discussing Darwin or right. Newton as viable, uh, you know, as viable theories and let alone something that happened 2,000 years ago. But the answer there is, I think, along the lines of what, what you helped bring out a few minutes ago when we were talking about some utilitarians going back to Bentham-like positions, right. or when I was talking about, you know, some anti-realists going back to positions that are similar to the uh, logical empiricists. What happens is you don't take Plato at face value as is, as if it were just, you know, the latest thing in philosophy. You take Plato with cognition of everything that hap has happened in philosophy in the last 2,000, 2,400 years. That's right. And what you do if you go back to a platonic position, let's say, it's never a platonic position. It's a neoplatonic right, position. Right, of course. It, right? Or a neo-Aristotelian position or whatever it is. Or a neo-Kantian position. What you do is you go back to that family of positions that because it was studied by Plato, 
it's fair to say it's platonic yeah. or because it was studied by Kant, it's fair to say it's Kantian. But no, you don't take Kant himself verbatim. You don't take Plato himself verbatim. You just go back and reinterpret and build on that family of positions. It's the family of positions that it's still viable, not everything yeah. that Plato wrote. Yeah, 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 that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so we did ethics and we did, um, we did uh, philosophy of science. Uh, we're at an hour and 10 minutes. Do you want to do one more um, uh, and, and then we can wrap it up? Um, um, how about how about, you want to do epistemology? So how about epistemology? I mean, that's a sort of an interesting one because epistemology is one in which I think a lot of people feel like the biggest major development in the last 40 years actually kind of just derailed the subject <laughs> and sent people into an endless loop of trying to solve this bloody problem. Yeah. I'm talking, of course, about the Gettier cases. Right. Now, there's right. some people who are going to say that, well, these are absolutely brilliant. They were watershed, and they completely transformed the discipline. And that's an example of progress. Right. But I could also give you plenty of people who are going to say, no, it was the death of epistemology. Right. Is that he set us off on this damn puzzle. It's like getting obsessed with the trolley cases or getting obsessed with something. It totally derailed to where people did nothing for 30 years afterwards except for talking about fucking Gettier. Um, right. So now I don't know if you if you want to talk about Gettier at all. I mean, there's a lot of other areas in epistemology, but epistemology yeah, seems to me to be one where you could actually argue that it got derailed. It didn't make progress; yeah. it got derailed. So, what do you yes, think? Yes, I don't. I think let's let's talk about Gettier. So, uh, <coughs> my position actually is somewhere in between the ones that you described. I do think that Gettier uh, paper was important and it was an example of progress. I also think, however, that if one is not careful, one one does sort of start doing more and more convoluted things that become less and less. It becomes very relevant. scholastic almost. It becomes very, in that sense. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes what I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, ben Dennett uh, said, uh, uh, you know, qualified as the distinction between chess and schmess. Um, where, so let, let me start with that one because that's sure, actually an interesting point. So uh, Dennett says, look, uh, chess is a field of studies, not just a game. You can, you can study chess. You can study, uh, you know, you, you can prove mathematical theorems, uh, let's say, about uh, the game of chess. You can, you can explore new ways of, you know, answer, uh, addressing problems within chess and so on. So it is a scholarship, uh, let's say, of chess. Now, uh, they, this may or may not be your cup of tea. You, you know, you may or may not want to spend your life doing that. But it is an established uh, area of inquiry. Right. And it, is, and it is interesting for some people. Now. Uh, you could, nobody's stopping you from uh, establishing a parallel tradition that is very similar to the, to the scholarship on chess, uh, focusing on a different game, Schmess. And Schmess is exactly like chess, except that the king moves by two uh, squares at a time instead of one. Right? Now, that change, I, I haven't checked, but I'm sure that changes the dynamics enough that some theorems and some things that are valid in chess are not going to be valid in Schmess. Right. And because the two universe of universes of possibility are just as large, more or less, you could, in fact, spend a lifetime redeveloping, you know, a theory, in-depth theory of Schmess. The question that, that Dennett asks is, but why would you, given that most people don't play Schmess, right? right? You just made it up so that you can make your own little academic career and going to a, a tangent that while it is difficult, I mean, his interesting point is that devoting your life to Schmess 
would be difficult because these are difficult problems that require ingenuity and intelligence and so on and so forth. And you will come up with new things. It's just that nobody will give a damn because nobody plays Schmitz. Right. Okay. Now, I think that a similar thing has the risk of happening with in epistemology in response to Gettier. So let's go back to what Gettier actually did, right? So uh, knowledge has been thought of since Plato. Since Plato. As true justified belief, right? <laughs> as justified true belief, right? right? Although it's, the funny thing is that actually when I talk to Plato scholars, uh, they tell me actually he didn't hold on that to that view. He said something like that in a couple of the dialogues, but not necessarily. It doesn't mean that he held that. It doesn't matter. Right. If the view is there, it's in play, right? Whether he believed it or not, it, it's it's really actually irrelevant. Okay. Now, justify true belief. Meaning what? Meaning that uh, according to Plato and people who follow that way of looking at things, uh, in order to to claim knowledge about something. You have to believe what you're claiming because it would be really weird right. to say, I know something that I actually don't believe to be true. <laughs> right. you know, what, what are you, what are you, what are you right. talking about? Um, so there has to be belief. It has to be, in fact, uh, true. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so, so justifiable, right? So uh, true, ju justified true belief. There has to be true, meaning that things actually have to. Right. You can't um, know something that's false. You can believe something yes. that's false. You can't know something that's false. And then there yeah. has to, you have to have a good reason for it. It has to be justified. Exactly. Right? The justifiability right. part, right? right? So as it turns out, of course, so that means that most of us actually know much less than we think we know, right? Because even though I know, quote unquote, let's say, that um, quantum mechanics is about the collapse of the, of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, certain, equa uh, uh, certain equations that describe the collapse of a wave uh, uh, and so on and so forth, I don't know what that means. No. <laughs> you know, explain that to me. It's like, I have no idea. You just go to Wikipedia. So I don't actually know anything about quantum mechanics. Uh, it's probably true. My belief that quantum mechanics is a, is a sophisticated and largely correct theory about the world is probably, probably true, true right? because I trust the physicists to do that. I do believe it is true. Uh, so there is the belief, but I don't know that I can justify. In fact, I know that I cannot justify. So I don't really, I cannot claim knowledge of right. one. Although yeah. the belief is justified in the sense that there are good reasons for it. It just sure. maybe that your belief is not justified because sure. because. And if we're talking about someone knowing something, then then it matters that their belief be justified, not just that there be a rationale somewhere, right? Uh, sure. But that they have it, right? And exactly. indeed, indeed, there's a whole literature on justification on so whether the justification has to be something that they are internally aware of or whether the justification simply lies in some actual structural relationship between them right. and the truth maker. So, so, so in that sense, of, you know. yeah. And so in that sense, you could say that humanity as a whole knows a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> but individual human beings know a lot, a lot right, less. Very little, right? That's right. Okay. Now, this thing went on gingerly for 2,400 years, more or less, you know, give or take, and then Gettier in 1963, uh, 63, I believe, or some there. there it was in the 60s. I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. in the 60s. Uh, published this paper. Now, now, the funny thing, if you know the story, is that Gettier had never published anything up to that point, and never in fact had published anything after that point. Uh, he published the paper because he needed tenure. It was going up for tenure, so he needed at least one publication. And the paper is very short. It's just three pages. Yeah. Okay. So, so here we have an interesting case of somebody who has done nothing else. So one-hit wonder in philosophy, right? It's just yeah. <laughs> like, and yet he has 
demonstrably made a huge impact right. on his field. I mean, he has transformed his, his field. You, you cannot do seriously, you cannot seriously do epistemology today without actually taking into account, even if, you have, if you're going to go ahead and dismiss them. But if you don't take into account Gettier problems, you're just dead in the right, water. Right, you're, right. Not, you're not doing epistemology. Now, so what Gettier pointed out, of course, was that there is an entire class of situations which are now named after him, you know, Gettier cases, where it seems like uh, the justified true belief conditions are in fact met, and yet it seems also very weird to talk about knowledge, right? So let me give you just one, I mean, I know you know the, the examples, but for the benefit of our uh, viewers. So uh, one example, let's say that I walk into the park, into Central Park, which is not far from here, and, and, and I say, oh, I've just seen my friend Phil walking on the other side of the park. Uh, as it turns out, what I saw was Phil's twin brother, right. not Phil. Well, so I'm mistaken, right? I, I shouldn't be able to claim knowledge. And yet, my belief is true because it turns out that Phil himself also was in the park in a different area. I just didn't see him, right? right? So my statement is true. I believe it to be true. And, and it is justified. Good, and you had a good reason, right? Right. I have right. a very good reason because I saw right. Phil with my, with my eye, what I thought was Phil right. with my eyes, right? So that's that's the crux. That's the basic stuff about about. I mean, there are actually two different classes of KTAH problems. There are the simple ones, and then the more complicated, sophisticated yeah. ones. But let's stick with that. So, you know, people looked at this and say, "Oh crap!" <laughs> right? That seems true. That seems like yes, found. I can't. As you know, philosophers, uh, especially analytical philosophers. Uh, put a lot of emphasis on counterexamples. Yeah. Right? So if you can come up with a counterexample to a notion, uh, the, the idea is that you probably have shown that that notion is in fact false. Right. Or at least the now, counterexample, pending the counterexamples being addressed in some satisfying way, right. one has to at least take it as tentatively having been refuted. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, that therefore, you know, people took Gettier's uh, uh, paper seriously, and, and that, as you said a few minutes ago, Span a whole cottage industry of responses, and there's a there's two concept maps in my book. Maybe we can link to them or, or have them on the website uh, so that people can look at them. But there are, I've actually drawn two concept maps that sort of summarize most of the major responses to uh, to Gettier. And without getting into the details, these responses go into different directions. They do they respond. People have responded in different ways using different strategies. Some people, for instance, added a fourth condition. Right. That are justified true belief is justified true belief and right. something else, and that and that something else can be different things. Other people say, no, wait a minute. Um, they have noticed that all Gettier cases are of a particular kind. Okay, they, you have to. You, you, there are not that many different types of Gettier cases. They all have the same. They share they common features. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you can say, well, therefore the concept is still valid, except when you have that particular feature, and those particular features are actually, a, you know, a, a special case. Uh, and we can take into account either as setting it aside as a special case, or coming up coming up with a more general theory uh, that sort of points out that there are these other special cases. So there are different strategies. Now, I count all of those as instances of, pro including Gettier himself, of course, as instances of, of progress because uh, they are novel positions, they are coherent positions, you know, they are defensible positions, and they are, uh, they broaden the horizon of epistemologists when it comes to the question of what is knowledge. 
so in that sense, I think epistemology has made progress with Gettier and since Gettier. Now, here's where the schmess however, comes back to bite our ass. Um, because the thing is, at some point, you got to say, okay, I have, we had pretty much explored all of the sensible responses and counter responses and counter counter responses. And in order to add anything more, in order to quote unquote settle the matter, right, to come up with a definitive answer to uh, Gettier, now we're getting into more and more esoteric, more and more strange notions, more and more things that are so difficult to apply or so uh, out of the uh, of the interest of any any not only any normal person but most epistemologists. That now you're, it looks almost like you're you're doing schmess and not chess anymore. You you uh, you went in you're going in directions that are simply a diminishing return. They're generating diminishing returns. Yeah. And so I think that one what one needs to do in epistemology is pretty much what one needs to do in uh, ethics, and say, okay, we have a better landscape. We have a more complete landscape, a more complex landscape. These are the positions. Uh, there is no knockdown notion. There's no knockdown argument for in favor of any of these positions. Uh, because all of them are, are, are uh, you know, prone or open to further rebuttals. But on balance, uh, this particular one, I think, is, is, is the one that works better or it's more useful or is whatever it is. Yeah. Just like you would say in ethics, you say, look, there's no, no knockdown argument against uh, or in favor of deontology, utilitarianism of one stripe or another, virtual ethics of one stripe or another. You say, okay, this, this, this is the constellation, this is the landscape. And now we can use one or the other, depending on uh, the particular situation, depending on our propensity, depending on what, you know, what resonates with us and so on and so forth, which is what you always do in philosophy, because as I said, the empirical, grossly underdetermined, uh, underdetermined uh, uh, philosophical accounts. So you're never going to, not, not only the empirical, but even the logical, there's more than one logically coherent philosophical account of pretty much anything interesting that I can think of. There's more than one logically coherent account of the concept of truth. Yeah, and yeah. you're not going to be able to decide among those accounts. What you have to do is to say, well, we eliminated the ones that don't seem to work. We have refined and improved on the ones that seem viable. And now that's what we have. We have this landscape. And this is the end of the story. Because to do more than that, you're going to move into schmetz. Yeah. No, no, I think that's, that's, I think that's interesting. I also think that, you know, the schmetz point, and I guess the counterpart here would be that you're no longer talking about knowledge, you're talking about schmollage now. Um, <laughs> um, um, one of the things that just strike me about this, because when you first started talking about the schmetz, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, given that schmetz is only superficially dissimilar from chess, if it's not interesting, why the hell is chess interesting, right? Um, uh, um, given that they only differ from one by one root by one one factor, um, and one of the things that struck me as 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 you were talking through this is that you know this speaks to the to extent to which philosophy is not a completely ungrounded intellectual exercise. It does is about what we actually do, how we actually, and how we actually are, and the notions we actually have matter, right? That's right. It's not right. A, it's not an empty canvas that you just paint coherent pictures on, right? And that's right. the extent to which 
it isn't fully in the, the camp of logic and mathematics, right? It really is Correct. something that is grounded, and, and, and that's why I emphasize the, the, sort of the, the Solarsian point. I really think it is grounded in the manifest rather than the scientific image. I think it does sometimes attempt to bridge this, the, talk about the relationship between the manifest and the scientific image, and sometimes in the case of philosophy of science, it deals entirely with the scientific image. Yeah. But as you were talking I, through Gevier, it makes me really think that I philosophy is grounded in what we actually are, how we actually act, what we actually do as people. Right? That's right. That's right. In fact, uh, what I suggest at some point in the book is that the business of philosophy is to aid in, uh, in human understanding uh, both ourselves, uh, you know, the Socratic uh, dictum, basically, yeah. or, the, or the Delphic dictum, even, you know, know mm -hmm. thyself, and the world. But the world, not in the sense, uh, understanding of the world, not in the sense of these, you know, sort of uh, God's eye view that is independent of our epistemic limitations and cognitive limitations. And <clears throat> understanding in the sense of you and I want to understand what's going on, both inside us and out there. That's right. And of course, science has to be a component of that because without it, there is no no full understanding or, you know, no, no, no good understanding of things. But ultimately, it does have to come down to the manifest image. Yeah. Yes. Because it's about us understanding things. Right. This, in some sense, was also Van Frassen's point, right? What is distinction between uh, observables and unobservables? That's not an absolute distinction. It's a distinction relative to epistemic to human epistemic agents. Yeah. yeah. Because that's what we are. We are human epistemic agents. We're epistemic agents of a particular kind. So the answer to the question of why chess instead of schmess? Because <laughs> this is, is what entirely, we actually do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, entirely historical, right? right? Somebody came up with those rules instead right. of those other ones could have come up with Schmess, and we will be talking about Schmess instead of That's Schmess. Right. But in the case of ethics, the answer is because we want to know how to live our lives, because we are social, biological right. individuals of a you know, species of a particular kind, and we have certain problems to solve, and that's why we do ethics. It's not arbitrary. It's not about just, just theoretical, you know, logical hair-splitting. It's about our lives. It's about what, right. what we do, how we construct our societies, how do we behave as individuals, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a this is a very clear note on which to end. Um, um, and um, I guess the next the, the, what I want to know is um, what's the next what's your next big? Uh, are you are, have you had enough with books for a while? <laughs> um, so, so I mean, your Stoic book is coming out, but you finished it already. So there are going to be some edits, I guess. <laughs> the, story book, um, the story book is uh, finished in first draft. It's going to the editor uh, actually next week, and then. Uh, Hopefully, it will come out in uh, April, sometime in April. And, you know, when it comes out, I'm, we might do an episode. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Done, yeah, we've done, we've done uh, stories before, but, you know, if there is a new book. Well, but not the book. I mean, we haven't done the book. We've talked about it in general. We've talked about it historically. Right. versus. But I'm assuming the book is quite specific. And so... Yes, um, it is. And, it, um, and it focuses actually on the, <clears throat> on the, on the uh, character of Epictetus in particular. Uh, I also have a collection of, uh, you know, sort of edited collection of, of papers that I'm putting together, I'm just finished putting together with Martin Baudry, who is a philosopher of science at Ghent University. That's going to come out also next year, later in the year probably, by Chicago Press, uh, and it's on scientism. So that's another thing that uh, we could uh, talk about. This is The idea was to uh, ask a bunch of philosophers and scientists what they thought. You know, Some of them are critical of scientism. You know, they think scientism is a, is a bad idea. Others actually embrace it. Um, and so that, that's another thing that's coming out. And then the next question is, what's going to be my next book? I have a couple of ideas at the moment. Yeah, where, where, where's, where do you see, where's your research pointing now, your research interests? Where do you, where do you think you're going to go next? 
I think it's generally speaking, it's going to continue both in terms of sort of stoicism on the one hand, especially as a practice and philosophy of science on the other hand. I mean, most of my, uh, I have a, a number of forthcoming technical papers on philosophy of science, but in terms of book writings, it's going to be, it's interesting because I think I may branch into directions that are uh, so far unexplored. So I was, um, uh, uh, during my sabbatical, I was thinking like, uh, there's this historical figure uh, that actually recurs in a couple of uh, Platonic dialogues, Alcibiades. He, he was a Athenian general who was a friend uh, and uh, student actually of Socrates. And, uh, and he was a fascinating figure. I mean, the guy was involved in the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> Arguably, he basically caused the, the loss, you know, Athens loss indirectly. Because of him. <laughs> he, he, you know, he went from one group to another. He was very popular in Athens, and then he was uh, cast out. And then, so as a revenge, he went to Sparta, uh, and then he had trouble there. And then he went to the Persians, and then he, he said, "No, I'm really going to go back to Athens." It was a fascinating huh. And as far as I know, there is no biography of him uh, out there. I've looked, uh, so I'm not a biographer, and I'm not an historian. But I think it would be interesting to write a book on Alcibiades, centered on Alcibiades, that talks about both the history and the philosophy. Because Socrates takes Alcibiades to be the quintessential example of an unwise person who gets into politics. <clears throat> yeah. and, and that he goes into and he has all this trouble because he lacks uh, wisdom. Okay? Uh, he's a very smart man. He's a very capable man. He's a uh, courageous uh, soldier. He has a lot of other attributes. But he lacks wisdom, and so there's this wonderful dialogue in the, the, the Alcibiades minor, uh, major, in which uh, Socrates basically chides him and says, "You know, this is this is the problem with you, my friend. Uh, it's, it's your lack of philosophy." <laughs> so I think that uh, if I can pull it off, I, I'm not sure, but if I can pull it off, it will be uh, both an excuse for me to learn more about Alcibiades and, and that old that entire period of Athenian and Greek history, but also sort of putting together a book that actually has a philosophical underpinning and it is about uh, politics and, and how uh, even modern politicians lack wisdom in the Socratic sense. That's why you get the kind of people that we, we're getting right now in the, you know, in the presidential elections in the United States. Well, that sounds uh, all very interesting and look forward to it. And um, look forward to uh, seeing you over at your blog, Plato's Footnote, which uh, people should check out. <laughs> And um, we will uh, we'll, we'll provide as many links as we can to some of the things we talked about. Uh, I'll email you privately about that and um, so that people can uh, look things up and pursue various uh, ideas further. Massimo, thank you so much, and welcome back to the United States. Thank you. It was a pleasure, my friend. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.